Good morning, everyone. My name is Larry Cantor, in case you don't know who I am, and I'm very grateful to be worshiping here at South Shore Baptist these last several years, and especially grateful today for the opportunity to give the message today and be part of that uh, group of preachers during the summer. And uh, can you find the book of Colossians today? Chapter 2, please. hard thing about potholes in the spring is you can't always see them. They seem to sneak up on us and surprise us. Especially during those rainy, dark nights, they almost swallow up your car. It would sure be nice if they warned us if there was a pothole that was coming. Road signs can be helpful if you know what they're talking about. When I moved to Massachusetts over 25 years ago, I discovered there were some road signs that I really didn't know what they were talking about. I had never seen them before, thickly settled. Dangerous intersection, I kind of know what that is. Roundabout coming. Duck crossing, turtle crossing, better slow down, deer crossing. In New Hampshire, when I went there, moose crossing. And soon coming to Hanover, Situate, and Cohasset, maybe bear crossing. (laughs) And then, of course, um, discovering Route 128, I think or 93, or 95, first time being on that road. Memories, breakdown lane, what's the breakdown lane? So there's a lot to learn there. Now the state of Colorado has some interesting signs too, as well. In the wintertime it used to be over the passes, they would say, chains required. And then for truckers, I like this, runaway truck lane. For brake failure, exit here. And then it ramps up to a gravelly road for the truckers. And then more for the truckers as you're going east on I-70. Steep winding road several miles ahead. Truckers use low gear. And then a few miles later, truckers, You are not down yet. Perhaps my favorite was a very busy intersection in Denver uh, where there was a flashing sign, be like Elsa, let it go. Remote areas, no service, next 75 miles. Yikes. Now, it'd be nice for the church if we had warning signs, 
But wait, we do. And they're there to help us along our journey with Christ. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul gives instructions to the church in Colossae. And we learned previously that this was a journey that Paul struggled to help them with. But there was great things that were still happening in the church there. He rejoiced in, in what was going on. They had a good reputation. They were, they were growing in grace and maturity and hope. The gospel was bearing fruit all over the world. And they certainly must have had a mission mindset. But Paul wanted to give them some signs to help them along the journey to help them continue their mission and maturity. And he warns them of deceitful teachings that had infiltrated their congregation and their thinking. These were cultural pressures, religious ideas and alternatives that could easily deceive and trap them and persuade them with their arguments. So I'm going to read uh, Colossians chapter 2 to give you context. I'm going to begin in verse 1. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it's 1044. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And may God open our minds to his word today. So as we look at this section of scripture, 
and the big picture of this chapter, I want to show you some contrasts of the ideas that you're going to see in Colossians chapter 2. You see several opposites that Paul juxtaposes with them. For example, in verse 8, we see the word empty, empty deceit. Then we also see the contrast of fullness or completeness in Christ. We see the phrase elemental principles or elemental spirits in verses 8 and 20. And that, of course, contrasts to Christ alone. We see the phrase, the word philosophy or human tradition in verse 8. And that contrasts, of course, to Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority and who we are sufficient in. Verse 11, the circumcision done by man versus the circumcision of Christ, which is by the spirit in the inner heart, verse 11. We see the phrase buried with him in baptism in verse 12, and we see raised with him through faith. We see the idea of dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 13, the opposite, which is made alive with him and forgiven. Verse 13, we see the certificate of debt, verse 14, which is the legal rules and opposition against us. And that has been erased, canceled, nailed to the cross. We see rulers, principalities, and authorities in verse 15, disarmed, disgraced, and triumphed over. So like most of Paul's letters, Colossians can easily be divided in two main sections. There's a doctrinal section in the first two chapters, and then the application of that doctrine in the rest of the book, or the last two chapters in this case, second part. And I see here that Paul has three important concepts, three ideas to help us understand the greatness and glory of Christ himself. Christ alone, Christ sufficient for us. We see that in him and with him and to him are often used in this section. In fact, the whole book of Colossians. So to help us along our journey and to avoid the potholes of our journey with Christ, first word I want to give to you is the word receive. Receive in verses 6 and 7. Receive. Also the word take. It's the same translation. I actually like the word take, but most translations use receive. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, when I was uh, a college student running around my campus just a few years ago, I was trying to figure out who I was and what to do and what to study and what in the world was going on in my life. I was invited to a campus ministry. And uh, that, little, that campus ministry used a little yellow book, booklet actually, you may have heard of, may have seen, may have used it before. It has the word for on it and spiritual 
laws in it as well. Most of the churches I served, it was, it was tucked in front of the uh, pew rack or behind the, the, the books in the pew rack so people could access it. And the word, that word, receive, may have been the key word that opened my blind eyes to the gospel. Fourth law or principle is simply this. We must individually receive Christ as Savior and Lord. So that phrase stuck with me. I didn't really understand at all that it meant. But for weeks, I knew that I had to pray that prayer of receiving Christ. And so I did that probably for about two months. Every night, I would ask Christ to come into my life, and I would pray the prayer of salvation. In the meantime, a ministry staff member asked me, uh, Larry, have you, have you received Christ? And um, I said, well, I've done it many, many times. And he said, well, if you've done it once, that's all you need to do. And so that was quite helpful for me. I certainly would have benefited from Mike McGarry's book on discovery, but that was far before he was born, I think. The point being, you must receive Christ, you must walk with him with thanksgiving, and you must continue with him, rooted, connected, with strong roots. The best way I could describe that would be like the oak trees in your yard. They have strong roots, usually. Not a weak bamboo tree that might fall over when the wind But all of us, especially new and and young Christians, need to have that solid foundation in Christ. And receiving is simply the hand of a beggar taking the gift of a king. John 1, 12, as many as, or all, to all who have received him, to them he gave the authority, the right to become children of God. And so that's when I began to understand that I was part of God's forever family by receiving him. So I might ask you as well the same question I was asked, that we asked several of our students then. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes? No? Not sure? This could be the start of a new life. It's a beginning moment, but you'll never be disappointed. You'll be enriched by Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Receive the gift of eternal life. That's the open door to a walk with God, a life with God. And Paul encouraged the Colossian church to continue with him. Second word is the word filled. I like the translation of some Bibles, complete. You're complete in Christ in verse 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, or complete in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Filled. Christ has fullness, and you are fulfilled 
in, through, because of him. Now this was, this was a contrast to what was going on in Colossae. This was a region that loved spiritual accessories, alternatives. Um, there were the phrase elementary spiritual forces or principles, the word in Greek stoichia, which is a dangerous mix we might describe today of humanism, self-help, creation worship, religious works, even astrology. You might see it on some of the talk shows and you might hear about it from your neighbors and friends. It's going on today. But it was a false teaching then that was creeping into the church, threatening to undermine their allegiance to Christ, but based on man-made tradition rather than Christ. It was artificial. It wasn't real. Now, my wife Sue <clears throat> likes a certain sneaker. She's always liked it, so we always have to buy it when she wears it out. And. Uh, we were doing fine buying it each time she needed it. And this time, however, or recently, I should say, when we opened the box and looked at the top of the sneaker, to my horror, it said, man-made uppers. It's not leather. It's not the same. It's artificial. Now, the Colossian church had based their philosophy on several opposites to the real thing. Traditions of men and the reality versus the reality of Christ. Empty deceit versus Christ alone, Christ without any add-ons. So my friends here, and especially younger people, if, if you're in Christ, your identity is complete. You're complete in him. And certainly, Paul wanted to get that message across to a very diverse church, to a church that we discover in chapter 3, verse 11, that had a lot of diversity, ethnic diversity. I'm sure there were men and women. For he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, here there is not Greek, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. What we have in common is Christ. And we're complete in him. And all his fullness dwells in bodily human form. We discovered that theme earlier in chapter 1, when we learned about the preeminence of Christ as the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Christ. How do we explain the fact that he's the God-man, the perfect God-man. Well, we, 
we would say God is fully, uh, Christ is fully God and fully man, or true God and true man, 100% God and 100% man, completely God, completely man, veiled in flesh, we sing at Christmas, hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, God became flesh, he became a man for us, perfectly, without sin. The early church struggled to articulate this and describe it. They used the creeds, the Chalcedon, Nicene, and Athanasian creed that would spell it out for us. Two natures without division, without change, without confusion. Listen, friends. Christ, Christian doctrine, good biblical Christian doctrine, can be a beautiful, faith-building, vision-clarifying, sufficient, multi-ethnic, cross-cultural help for whatever confusion comes your way. Amen? Just knowing what God is like. So precious for us to hear and so important for us in the day in which we live. We do hear that uh, people are settling for a God according to their personal preference. I want my God to be this way. Larry, my God is not like your God. Um, you have your truth and I have my truth. We hear that a lot, don't we? Uh, but Christ is sufficient and uncompromised. My power is, and you fill in the blank, what do you want your higher power to be? So we need, friends, as, as believers, to get real about Christ. To the Colossians, you have already been filled, he says, with this perfect, complete Savior, for those who believe that circumcision was the sign of belonging to God's kingdom, he said, wait a minute, Paul says, no, it's radical, Christ's radical death to the flesh, the sin nature that changes the heart, true circumcision of the heart by the spirit. You're inwardly changed. And the illustration of baptism, many certainly had been baptized already, buried with him in death to sin and raised up the newness of life, this is the whole new life you have. No wonder, no wonder that when we have people who get immersed in our baptistry here, the first thing we often hear out of their mouths and from the congregation is hallelujah, hallelujah. What a wonderful experience that is to have that in your memory. Your identity is secure in Christ. Your future is certain in Christ. Your hope is glorious. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your life in Christ, absolute long-term forgiveness and joy. Don't settle for anything less than that. Oh, wait, wait, there's more. The third life-giving tr truth is described in verses 13 through 15. 
One of the most powerful words in your family, in your school, in your community, in your soul is this word, forgiveness. Forgiveness is taught in this section, verses 13 through 15. He says that, Paul says, and, and you, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Forgiveness. His teaching is to remind them that the debt of their sin and its legal obligations has been put on the cross of Christ. He describes our fallen condition as dead in trespasses and sin. That's our fallen condition, all of us, until we're made alive by Christ and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That physical circumcision for males was the was the mark of God's people. They were included in the family of God and the children of Israel. But, but both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Both have broken their own standards of righteousness and laws. They were both spiritually dead, but God brings new life in Christ. For Colossian Christians, like many today, forgiveness may have seemed like an elusive, distant reality. But God makes it clear and simple for us in these words. We have spiritual debts. They pile up. Americans are sadly in a time of great financial debt, many of them, using their credit to continue to live. And so we understand the burden of debt. And our spiritual debt also is a burden that needs to be erased, done away with. And Jews would have some knowledge of this, certainly by the, the annual day of atonement when <clears throat> their sins were forgiven once a year. But they would also understand that wonderful time when the people of God would experience what's called the year of jubilee. You would probably like that. <clears throat> All of the debts were erased. But just imagine, wouldn't that be kind of nice? But God does this. No student loan debt for the Israelites. No car debt. No camel debt. No house debt. The burden of sin often seems like a heavy burden of debt. We could never pay. The price is too high. And it weighs heavily upon us and our culture. Part of the mental health crisis today that we hear about, I believe, from a spiritual point of view, is due to not understanding or experience, experiencing the divine power of forgiveness. Would we be a healthier culture, society, 
if people understood the principle of forgiveness, God's forgiveness, forgiveness of others. Now, every Sunday and sometimes Saturday night across the South Shore, in church buildings and services, we hear a prayer uttered. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Some call it the Our Father Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts or sins or trespasses, depending on the church you're in, as we forgive our debtors. Sometimes done routinely, wrote with rote and unthinking. But there's that concept again, that longing that God would forgive and that I would be a forgiving person too. Now, one of my favorite illustrations is the record book of sin. Some of you probably know this. It's very simple. God has a record book of life. We'll use this as a record book. Everything I've done is written in here. All my past, all my deeds, all my thoughts. And someday the books will be opened. And it, it's a burden to think that this record book of sin will go with me unless something happens. And the good news, though, is that something did happen. Talked about in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's him? Christ, suffering servant. God put that sin, that record book of my sin, on his son. And so now God doesn't, see my sin but he sees he sees Christ what a beautiful idea for those who are burdened with guilt and pain in John 19 Christ was on the cross one of the last words he word what he uttered was the word to telestai in greek which means it is finished it is accomplished. Christ finished. Our sin. Our debt. He paid it. He paid it. For all of us. For all eternity. The debt is paid. Another picture that speaks to me is, maybe you have experienced this at a service, a summer camp, or a Good Friday service, maybe. The worshipers are all gathered. They're given a piece of paper. And at the end of the service, they're asked to take a moment and reflect, consider prayerfully their life and their experience, and write down all the sins that God brings to mind, maybe the last week or maybe in the last year. And so at the end of that service, they, they individually fold the paper. There's a wooden cross, and they have thumbtacks perhaps to put it up. And they 
one by one, go up and put their sins symbolically on that cross. What a debt that's been paid. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He bears the debt I could not pay, and let's not forget he rose triumphantly from the grave. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The last story is, is about a book that Tim Keller wrote just before he graduated to eternity. I think it was the last year. The, na the name of the book is, is Forgiveness. He tells the story of evangelist Billy Graham, who some of you probably don't know, but he was a great evangelist, Baptist evangelist, but not really a Baptist. He was interdenominational, went all over the world sharing the gospel. I think the year was 1955. He went to Cambridge University in England. Sophisticated, intellectual, academic place. Some of the people here, I think, may have even studied there. But the first three days he was there, he spent time speaking to them, appealing to the intellectuals and academics that were there. And so he wanted to prove that he was not some simple, primitive, fundamentalist preacher, that he knew knowledge and arguments and he gave all the intellectual arguments that he could for trusting in Christ. Quoted all the scholars he could. But he could sense that his message was falling flat. And so he got down on his knees and prayed and changed his message. He decided, as he threw away his notes, I'm just going to preach on what the Bible says about the blood of Christ. He went back to that message of the cross. And when he did, 400 of Cambridge University's finest gave their hearts to Christ that day. Listen, my friends, even here in sophisticated, educated, progressive Hingham, Plymouth County, Massachusetts, seat of Boston, the place of higher learning, and education. Listen, it is still the cross of Christ, which is the message of the power of God. Amen? Can change any life. This is the victory we have in Christ. And for those in Colossae who thought there were some spiritual forces that may have been greater than Christ crucified, in verse 15 he tells us that he took those powers away he disarmed rulers and authorities and principalities, and he stomped on them. He triumphed over them, and now is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. He did it with all the alternatives that were circulating in that place. Maybe the best application in Colossians to forgiveness is the story of a slave named Onesimus. You can read about him in, in the book of Philemon. He had run away from his master, Philemon, but had come to know Christ. Paul befriended him and led him to Christ. He urged Philemon to welcome him back. If he owes you anything, charge it to me. 
he said to Philemon. You can read that story in Philemon. The simple truth, all throughout the epistles, all throughout the scripture, forgiveness taken, received, forgiveness given. So my friends, why would we ever settle for anything less than satisfaction in Christ? Why would we be captivated by the latest spirituality? Why would we allow ourselves to accept that you need something more additional to what Christ can give you? Where else can we go? There is none greater, none more perfect, none more able to save you from whatever is in your life today or yesterday. That simple phrase still speaks. Receive him, take him as your Lord and Savior. If you're empty, if you're weak, if you're hurting, if you're seeking, if you're guilty or you're burdened, come to him today. Come to him today. There's no pit that is so deep that God's love is not greater. Corey Ten Boom said that. That's the God we serve. That's the Christ we worship. You can build your life, your future on him. If you have received him, keep walking and trusting and believing and growing and forgiving in his grace. Yes, one good gospel, one perfect savior, one Lord, come to Jesus and be made complete and whole today. Would you bow in prayer with me? And Father, I still, I still remember those moments as a confused student walking my campus, trying to understand what it meant for Christ to come into my life and to receive him. I'm so grateful that I put my faith in him that I trusted him, not knowing all that it meant, but wanting to experience that my sins were really, truly, fully forgiven and that Christ could make me whole by being Lord and Savior of my life and remembering that simple prayer that maybe some of you pray today, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died on the cross for me. I take that gift of eternal life. I receive you. I take you by faith with gratitude to be my Lord and Savior. In his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, let's heed the call to fix our eyes adoringly on the only one who can erase our measureless debt. Would you please stand as we sing? Let's hear this call. And let's also celebrate the work that has been finished.